Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. We are going to be spending the next like 30 long weeks through the book of Romans written to the people of Rome, right? Many, many years ago, right? And so we're going to spend a lot of time going through the book of Romans. And here's kind of one of my very favorite things about the book of Romans. If you are new to this whole Jesus thing, welcome, hyped you're here. I was at one point in this room, brand new as well. And you have questions about who this guy who claimed to be God, the God-man Jesus, who he is. You have questions about sin, salvation, about heaven and hell, about can I know God? Does he want to know me? Does he love and care for me? Or does he view me like a, a cosmic cop or a, a Karen, right? Like, like, who is this God? Is he knowable? So maybe you're on that spectrum. You're new to this whole Jesus movement in the church, or maybe you're here today, and you kind of gave your life to Jesus a really long time ago. It was in second grade, and your Aunt Sally led you to the Lord, or whatever it was. You have this moment, and you were baptized in junior high or high school, whatever it may be. Here's the good news of the book of Romans. Regardless of where you are on that spectrum of belief, a devotion, commitment, whatever it may be, the book of Romans has something for you. Why? The book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, we'll meet him in a moment, is called his magnum opus. It means his greatest and grand, his mightiest, most important work. Let me kind of just kind of tell you a little bit about what some theologians have said about the book of Romans. It says this. One says, Romans is probably the greatest book in the Bible. Think about that. That's a big statement, right? There are 66 books in here. To pick out one and say it stands above the rest, all other 65 of them, it's the greatest book. It's a pretty impressive statement. Someone else says, Romans stands amongst the most important pieces of literature in intellectual history of man. That's wild. Another one says, it's safe to say that Romans is probably the most powerful human document ever written. Finally, it says, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected to a deeper understanding of this book. That's intense, right? The book of Romans, what is it? The book of Romans is the Christian manifesto of freedom. It it tells the tale of how you and I, because of Jesus, can be set free from our sin, have a relationship with God, and can set our old habits, whether that be alcohol, your addiction to porn, or whatever it is. It can be set behind you, and you can live a new life in the power of God's Spirit, different from your old one. It also tells us that We have the capacity, because of Jesus, to live heaven down, not hell up. Our natural default, if you haven't figured this out, is to bring and invite chaos into your world, chaos into your relationships, right? Even the world, if it's not tilled and it's not, weeds will start, whatever it is. The same is with us emotionally, spiritually, relationally. If you're not doing hard work or whatever, we kind of naturally live hell up. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of the tools that Paul gives us in this book, he can tell us and give us the message of what it looks like to invite heaven down, to live heaven down. Now, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had been a Christian preacher for like 20 long years or so, right? And so he's had a good long kind of walk with Jesus Christ. And during the authorship of this book, the book of Romans, which for those of you guys that care, is about 55 or so AD, and he wrote it in a place called Corinth. Now, when he wrote this book, it was believed that he was probably, his life was being threatened. And so he was unsure if he was actually going to be able to make it to the churches in Rome to go visit those, uh, those early Christians, And so in light of that reality, he wrote the book of Romans like distinctly different, um, as if he was never actually going to be able to get there. 
And so he wrote the book of, 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 of Romans, this, this letter, this epistle. You may hear me use that word epistle. It means letter. So comprehensively that the Christians in Rome could have had the gospel that Paul preached, even if he couldn't preach it physically because he wasn't ever going to be able to actually visit them. Now, because of this, the book of Romans, the letter, is actually unique from all of the other epistles and letters that he wrote. Other letters, if you were here for our um, Galatians series, we called Standing on Grace, you were kind of, you remember that like we, like Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia a very specific message about some things that were going on in their church. Letter of Romans is different in nature because it doesn't focus on the problem in Rome, but the problem solver, the great problem solver, God and his great plan for redemption and restoration. And so what makes this book so different is there's only 16 chapters, and he spends the first 11 of them dealing specifically and only with theology. Who is God? Can you know God? What is God like? Sin, salvation, all these types of things. He spends 11 chapters there, and then the next few, it starts um, in Romans chapter 12, therefore, in light of all of this theology, in light of who God is, this then is how you should live. This then is what your life should look like. And so the book of Romans is such a fascinating book. He also wrote it in such a way that if it was the only book, imagine you were on an island and you knew nothing of the name of Jesus Christ, nothing of Christianity. You've never stepped inside the walls of a church. And for some reason in a glass bottle, you open it up and it's the book of Romans, all 430 verses of it, right? 16 chapters. And you read through those. The book of Romans stands alone as being enough for you. What I mean by that is it would be sufficient enough for you to understand the message of Jesus Christ, what it looks like to be right with God about sin, salvation, all of that. You could grab one book in all of the Bible and you could get enough scripture and theology and about the personality of God to probably place your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, the theme of Romans, for those of you guys that care, is simple. It's the righteousness of God. What does that mean? In other words, how to get right with God. It's a book written to human beings, i.e. you and me, from another human being, about a message from God about how you, regardless of your past, regardless of the rap sheet, even if your rap sheet is as long as a CVS receipt, regardless of whatever's going on in your life, that you and I, we can be made right with God. And what that means is that this book, the book of Romans, is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word gospel, for those of you guys that may know, it means good news. But it comes from the Greek, uh, um, the Greek word, which is euangelion, euangelion. Now, for those of you guys that maybe looked up Seacoast before you came here ever, you know that we're an evangelical, non-denominational church. Where does the word evangelical come from? It comes from euangelion. It simply means bringer of good news. Fascinating enough is um, the word gospel is found, the two words most prevalent in the book of Romans are two, God and gospel. In fact, the word gospel is found over 60 times in the book of Romans. See, in ancient times, emperors of Rome, um, they would have someone called a herald go before them proclaiming good news about them, and this message was called a euangelion, a gospel. Now, what it sounded like was this. Um, He would go to the the, the town square. He would scream at the top of his lungs, basically, good news, the emperor has looked favorably upon you, right? Um, He is going to bring down your taxes, or uh, I don't know, Gavin Newsom is going to bring down uh, the gas tax or whatever it is, right? Newsom is going to bring it down, whatever, right? Um, Or or, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, um, the emperor is coming. Uh, He's coming to visit you guys. Or maybe the emperor is having uh, an error that's going to be this person, whoever it was. Simply put, uh, euangelion was a message of good news, a statement that was favorable. Now, in the English language, right, um, the Anglo-Saxon word um, gospel was from the word Godspell. Godspell, that's where it comes from. Godspell simply means good story, and I love that. God's story is a good story. Now, today we're going to be looking at the first seven verses because they summarize, weirdly enough, the rest of the entire book. 
Paul, in this just these few seven uh, verses, he's almost acting like a herald, telling basically uh, what is going to unfold for us in the next 16 chapters about the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go with me. Romans chapter 1, each and every single week, would love for you guys to bring your Bibles. Um, it's good that you guys like grab your Bible tactily and start knowing like kind of where, the, where it is, right? I've said this before. There are tons of places on earth you can go for information, right? Others for inspiration. But there's one place you and I can go for transformation. And it's God's word. That's what it promises that it, it'll do. Follow with me. Romans chapter one, it says this. Paul, that's our boy. That's who wrote this. You'll see in ancient writings, by the way, that it always starts, uh, like we write letters and we go to and then from. It always in the ancient world was from and then to, which is fascinating. Paul, a servant, a doulos, it's actually the Greek word for slave, but it's not like the slavery that you and I immediately jump to. The word slavery means indentured servant. It means someone who has devoted their life to the, uh, uh, the well-being of, to the, the will of, to the desires of. So it says Paul, a servant, someone who is submitting to Jesus or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. What's the word apostle mean? Apostolos is the, the Greek word. It means someone who is sent with a message, continues and says this, set apart for the gospel of God. So let's kind of meet our boy, uh, our boy Paul. Who is Paul, right? He was born to Jewish parents in a town called Tars, which is uh, in about southeastern Turkey. And he was born, his parents, when he was born, his parents gave him the Hebrew name Salus, which we get Saul. Now, he most likely was given that name because the first king of Israel, a Jewish man, was named King Saul, and the king after him was King David, right? And the word uh, Saul, or Saulus, means one who hears. Now, most Christians, we know him by a different name. Anyone know the name that we probably know him from? I've been telling you. Paul, right? It's the Greek word Paulus. That was how, that's how we know him. Now, people think that, like, Jesus renamed him, like, from Saul to Paul. That's not true. It's just one's his Hebrew name, and then the other one is his Roman name. Now, I have racked my brain on why he decided to choose Paul, because the name Paulus translates short one, little one. Like he's announcing to the world he's 5'9", but I'm 5'9 and a half, so it's all right. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like why, 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 why is that his name? In fact, there is an extra biblical writing in something called the Apocrypha, which is not Bible books. It's good history books. And uh, it kind of gives us maybe some physical characteristics of like what Paul maybe could have actually looked like. Here's what it says he looks like. Um, it says that it describes him as short, bow-legged, balding, and with a unibrow. So like definitely not like the Brad Pitt of his day, more like the Danny DeVito. You know what I'm saying? Like that's kind of like, that's the immediate image I get of like what, you know, what he looked like, right? Like what's that movie with Arnold and him? You know, like think Danny DeVito, not Arnold, twins, fire. All right. So this little man had a large impact, right? He like upended the world with his message, the message of Jesus, right? Now the Saul of Taurus, what we know about him is he was a very religious man and extraordinarily a well-educated man. In fact, some scholars believe that he was probably one of the most intelligent people on the planet during the time in which he walked. Some people say maybe two or three different PhDs. That's how intelligent Paul really was. Um, as he studied Judaism, and he was a Pharisee, um, which means that he was a top tier of the religious society, like ultra super Jew that wore a cape, right? That's what you need to think about when you think of Paul, right? Now, um, he studied Judaism under probably the most famous rabbi in antiquity during the time of Jesus, basically. It was a, it was a man named Gamil. Now, Gamil was like, super anti-Christian, right? Like he hated Christianity. He wanted to exterminate Christians, wanted to kill Christians, wanted to squash the movement of Jesus Christ. And so Paul studies under this man. And the reason that we know Gamil hated Christianity is because some of his prayers have been recorded since uh, during the time that he um, uh, gave them. And they've kind of been preserved throughout centuries and histories in the Jewish faith in something called the Talmud. And uh, here's one of his prayers. Let there be no hope to those who apostatize from the true religion. Let these heretics, Christians, how many there be, all perish and die in a moment. 
So he's a super friendly dude. And um, what we know about Paul is it seems like, because Paul studied under this guy, that he really took these words to heart because Paul's story in the book of Acts, it's, we're introduced to it, he was the Christian terrorist of his day. Right? Before he was for Jesus, he was like all about jihad. Right? His, his whole mission in life was a holy war against the Christian faith and movement. In fact, he's credited with the, inciting the very first mob um, that killed the very first Christian uh, named Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. See, in the first century, it almost certainly, it would have definitely costed you something to follow Jesus Christ, right? It would have most likely costed your life. In the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23, it says, um, to pick up your cross daily and walk. Like, that falls deaf on ears today. We think, like, I need to wear, like, my Jesus piece, or I need to get a tattoo. That's not what it means. It meant that the moment you were probably baptized, you would walk over to get beheaded. That's very different than, like, the way that we think of this today. Like, these people were willing to sacrifice their lives for following Jesus Christ. Here's the truth, and I think you could agree. I think we're becoming to live in an era where culture, media, uh, education, right, is becoming hostile to the biblical worldview and faith and the values in which we as Christians live from. And so the truth is, it's going to start costing us something probably as well, to start following Jesus, but it didn't cost our parents, and it didn't cost their parents, but it's probably going to start costing us something. And most likely in America, it's probably not going to be your life, in case you decide to like fly to China, which probably don't do that, right? But other than that, it's probably not going to cost your life in California or something like that. However, it may cost your livelihood. There could come a day, right, where like your bosses find out that you're a Christian and they want to not have you work in their company because of that. Maybe, not that you would ever do this, maybe you would have a teacher that would have a certain worldview and you have a worldview that's independent and different than the one that Dr. Whoever has. And you know that if you share your real opinions on this essay, that you're going to get downgraded on your grade. And so now you're vacillating with the ideas, should I have integrity with the values that I know or should I compromise them so that I can get a good grade in my class? Maybe for you, it comes in the form of rejection from others, right? Maybe you're going to be mocked, ridiculed, ostracized, judged because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. Paul was on a mission, right, to exterminate this movement to squash it, to bring it down, to persecute people that believe what you and I, and he ultimately eventually started to believe, right? You know, um, his mission, and he talks about this, his number one mission in life, exterminate Christianity. It wasn't called Christianity. It was called followers of the way. That's what he was his mission. That's what he wanted to do. Now, um, Acts, the first few chapters of it, talk about his mission. Talk about what he was wanting to do, to kill followers of the way. And so in the book of Acts chapter 9, you kind of see Jesus interrupt his narrative, interrupt his story. Jesus' post-resurrection, post-ascension into heaven, kind of meets Paul on the road to Damascus, kicks him off his donkey, blinds him, literally kicking him off his high horse almostly. And, and ultimately, Jesus in, in these hours and moments and really over three days begins to reveal to Paul who he actually really is. And it's in this moment that Paul realizes that it's his zeal for God that's actually causing him to go to war with God. Now, you fast forward just a few chapters into Paul's life, and something miraculous happens, right? He, he goes from wanting to kill the very movement to wanting to spread this news, right? Wanting to be an adherer to this, this message and, and this gospel. In fact, Paul is the most significant person in the New Testament other than Jesus Christ. This is like if Osama bin Laden, when he was alive, somehow became the leader of a new movement that was against Islam or whatever it is. Drastic, right? Like you would not expect that. And weirdly enough, Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books. There's 27 of them. And the book of Hebrews, it's like we don't know really who wrote. We think maybe Paul. So maybe 14 out of the 27 New Testament books, right? 
See, the conversion of Paul is one of the most, for me, is one of the greatest evidence that Jesus is God. But there's no other reason that a man like this would decide to place his faith in Jesus Christ. He lost everything. He was a very wealthy man, and he had to abandon his wealth. He had a lot of security in his life, a lot of comfort. He, the, he was a Pharisee, so he had a position in society. He had to abandon that. He had a good life, and if you fast forward in his story, he ends up getting beheaded for this message. What could coerce a heart that had everything that the American dream promises you and I, that they were going to recklessly abandon all of that? The truth is that he had to have in a moment an encounter and experience with the risen Jesus. See, Scripture tells us that Paul lived a pretty rough life because he followed Jesus. It says that he was flogged with a cat of nine tails five times. If you know the passion story, um, the story of the, uh, the, the crucifix and the resurrection, you know that uh, Jesus was flogged one time, and they were flogged 39 times. You were whipped 39 times. Why 39 times? Because on the 40th time, it was believed that you would die. Now, a cat of nine tails was a, was a piece of wood, and on it were leather strips. On the leather strips were sharpened pieces of metal or, or bone or rock or whatever it was. The whole purpose of it was to tenderize the flesh so that eventually it would pierce into the flesh and begin to maybe take out vital organs, rib cages, whatever it was. Paul was flogged five times, which meant his body would have been littered with scars. And next talks about he was beaten with baseball bats. It says, it says uh, uh, rods, baseball bats. I don't think they played baseball back then, but maybe. Um, <laughs> American pastime, it was a Roman pastime. Uh, right, so he's beaten with bats three times. Then it says he was stoned. That didn't mean he got high at high school under the bench, like, you know, it meant that he was, like, people picked up rocks and, like, chucked it at him because of his faith and belief in Jesus Christ, right? I mean, think about it, right? So if, if Paul were in a modern church today and he says, what have, like, what have you sacrificed to follow Jesus? He'd be like, ah, I got a B when I should have gotten an A. Um, all he'd have to do is, like, weirdly enough, take off his shirt publicly, and his body would be littered with scars that talk about how passionate he is about serving Jesus Christ, about telling you and I about a message that there is a God who wants to save you. Why? Why is Paul so passionate about this? Because he knows. He knows that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the closest to hell that you're ever getting. However, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, he knows this is the closest to heaven that you're ever going to get. And so he's passionate. He's passionate about telling you, telling me, telling us about a God who saves, which is the central message of the gospel. Follow with me in verse 2. It says this. Which he promised beforehand uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So what is this kind of... It's important that you understand that Paul is not saying, hey, this is a new message. Rather, it's a continuation and completion of the message that God has been giving for thousands of years now and centuries. So down throughout history, right, God provided us a roadmap. He foretold the various signs and conditions through his prophets, and these prophets spoke on behalf of God to mankind, recorded in the Old Testament, about what they were supposed to look like or what, what things that they were supposed to look like for when the Messiah would come, what characteristics, how could they recognize, how could they believe him. And this was all written down in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament contains 331 prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfills in the New Testament. And there's still a few, uh, a few more that he's, when his second coming, he's going to be fulfilling. But they have studied 331 prof, uh, prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled through his life, death, and resurrection. Mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling this amount of prophecy are staggering. Mathematicians put it this way. One person fulfilling just eight prophecies of the Old Testament one in 10 to the 16th power. That is a one with 16 zeros behind that. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies. And remember, he filled 331. One chance in 10 to the 157th power. 
that is a one with 157 zeros behind that. So what, what are the odds that one person would fulfill one, 331 prophecies? The, the number is so astronomical, that it's, it's literally just Jesus. I'm just give you five prophecies that were written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And these, by the way, are also extra biblical. Josephus, uh, Roman Tactus, um, people outside of the Bible recorded that Jesus fulfilled these things. The man named Jesus, Christ wasn't his last name, we'll talk about that in a second, but a guy that, that Jesus um, fulfilled these prophecies. Number one is this, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, in the book of Micah, chapter five, verse two, that's written 850 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. The next one, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, uh, 7 14. That's written 750 to 800 years before the birth of Christ. Enter Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey. We know that as uh, Palm Sunday. That's in the book of Zechariah 9, uh, 9. That's written 550 years before the birth of Christ. We'll be betrayed by a good and close friend. That's in the book of Psalms, chapter 41, verse 9. 500 years before the birth of Christ. And the final will be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver. This was written in Zechariah 11, uh, verses 12 through 13. 500 years before the birth of Christ. What does this mean? It means that it was God's plan from before the world actually began that God would come and give his prophets insights into what was gonna look like when the Messiah, the Savior, was gonna come into the world so that people would recognize, people would know him. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter talks about this. He says this, concerning this salvation, this message, the prophets in the Old Testament who prophesied about the grace, the message of Jesus, that was yours, uh, that to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. In other words, God revealed to them and said to them what to write, but not the totality of really what these words actually meant. Here's what this means. The truth of scripture is this. All of the Bible is a story about Jesus Christ. You and I are not the focal point of this book. And that's why whenever you're sitting in a group and it's like, you're like in a group, it's like, what does that mean to you? And you're like, mm, I think it means, that. like, that's not, that's not it. It's what did God mean when he inspired the authors to write it? This is a book about Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? The Old Testament. The Old Testament, all 39 books. The Old Testament is about the anticipation of Jesus Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, they're all about the presentation of Jesus Christ. After that, you have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about the continuation of Jesus Christ. Then you have the epistles and letters in the New Testament, all the letters of Paul and John and James. That is all about the explanation and clarification of Jesus Christ. And then it bookends with, the, with Revelation, which is the consummation by Jesus Christ. In other words, how all things are actually going to come to an end. See, the world has many religions, but it only has one gospel. And that one gospel is only found in this book. And that's what we're going to find in our next few verses. Follow with me in verse 3 through 5. It says this, Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. You're like, what? Like, so there was, a, there was a prophecy, again, we didn't go through today, that Jesus, or the Messiah, they didn't know his name, but they just know the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was going to come through the divinic line. What do I mean by that? Well, if you know the story of Goliath and David, and David killed Goliath and chopped his head off, and it's in coloring books for some weird reason. If you know that story, well, you know that that young boy who was a shepherd eventually became the king of Israel. It was prophesied during his time, six, seven hundred years before the birth of Christ, that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was going to come through his blood lineage. What does Matthew chapter 1 teach us? If you've ever done the Christmas narrative and story, it shows us that Jesus actually comes from a blood heritage from the Davidic line. That's what's being talked about here. And it says, according to the flesh, we'll come back to that, and was declared, the word declared is the Greek word for horizon, and it's an interesting word, horizo, and it's the idea that there was an appointed time, a, a declaration, it was declared. 
He continues and says, to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. Holiness, like, like what does that word mean? How many people would you say feel like they're whole? Just like, think about people your age, people that you're friends. How many of them do you think they have a full heart? What percentage of those people do you think, like, have it, that they're content? Like, they just, they're okay with who they are. They have a sense of peace. The word of holiness has two meanings here. It means, number one, to be set apart, to be different. But it also means wholeness. That Jesus was a man that was whole. That he lived as humanity was intended to live. That's one of the promises that God offers you. That as you continue to follow him, he's going to give you wholeness. It doesn't mean he's going to give you the American dream and a plethora of other things, but it means that he's going to fill your heart. He's going to give you a sense of peace that surpasses understanding, like, is like what Scripture says. That's what's being talked about with the word holiness. One of the things I've learned, right, and I'm going to be talking about this at the end of this month on our main campus, is I've realized that there, are many, there may be many church people that have saved souls but lost lives. Right, like, they may have made the, the proclamation that they follow Jesus Christ, but they've never actually made the personal possession of their faith in Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is, like, their life is still empty. They don't have the wholeness that Scripture talks about. They still suffer maybe with certain, like, maybe fear. The Bible says, fear not. But they still do, whatever it may be, right? I'm in, I'm in this boat as well, right? But, like, wholeness. We're going to continue. That's a theme, actually, that we're going to continue to talk about. Um, oh, no. What happened? There it is. Cool. All right. Um, what verse are we in? Concerning a son, declared to be the son of God, power of the Oh, the word holiness, right? Where is that? What verse is that? Mm, holiness. All right. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace, grace, unmerited favor. God saw something in you. Actually, he didn't see anything in you. God saw nothing in you and me, and yet he loves us for some reason. The gospel is such an interesting story. It is that you are more sinful, wicked, and evil than you think, but more deeply loved and accepted than you could possibly know. That's the message of grace. Apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, right? So there's tons here, but I'm just going to start with a question. Right? If you ever ask the question, like, who Jesus Christ is, what is his message, what is his gospel, these are your verses. Why? Because we are introduced to the person of Jesus Christ, right here in really two unique and special ways. Number one was concerning his human nature. The actual Greek, when it talks about being a descendant of David according to the flesh, comes, the Greek is kind of like pungent. It says, comes from the very sperm of David. <laughs> That's an uncomfortable phrase. It's emphasizing his humanity. That like that God did not just cross an ocean, a continent, hopped on a boat. He crossed the galaxy and universe, became one of us to reconcile to us all the show that he loved us then lived a life and then died the very same way that he lived with his arms wide open. I mean, that's the message of the gospel, right? And his, his humanity shows that he was willing to become like us to save us. This is the, why, this is the reason that, Christ, that human beings have the capacity to be saved, but demons don't. It's because he became a human being. He didn't become an angel or a demon. He became a human being. Therefore, salvation can be offered to you and me. It emphasizes his humanity here. For those of you guys that care, it's called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. But this is the person of the gospel. It revolves not around rules and regulations, but around the person of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is not about someone who is detached from us and wants to help us by remote control from really far away. No, it tells us about a God who loves us and came to become like us by the way we all come into the world. 
The second unique thing that we're introduced here is Paul in four words tells us what we need to know about the person of the gospel. He is the son of God. He's the one that came to be the savior of the world, that he is distinct and different than you and I, that he is the anointed one, the chosen one, that he is no ordinary man. He's the second person of the Trinity. He has a pre-existence before his bodily existence. What do I mean by that? The doctrine of Jesus, the idea of who Jesus is, that he's 100% man and 100% God, and that there is no one like him. See, let me introduce you a little to Jesus so you guys know who he is. His first name is a derivative of Yeshua or Joshua. We think his name is Jesus. That's a Latin word and a derivative. No one in the ancient world knew the name Jesus. They knew the name Yeshua or Joshua. What does Joshua mean? It means the delivering one. God delivers. Christ is not his last name. <laughs> they didn't have last names in the ancient world. It's a title. It means the anointed one, the chosen one. He's a man who lived 2,000 years ago, and he grew up in a small town of two peasant teenagers. His house was probably the size of like a walk-in closet, like a large walk-in closet. He was a tecton, which meant that he was someone that worked with stone and also a carpenter. He worked with predominantly wood. He, was, he had no kids, and he was never, uh, never married. He was not a wealthy man, and he led no army. He held no political offices, and he died a brutal death. Yet somehow, this poor person that only used three years of their lives changed the entire world as we know it. How? Like, like why? Because just as he promised that he would, three days after he died, he walked out of the grave proving that he was exactly who he said he was. Think of it this way. Think of the calendar for a second. He cracked the calendar in half. We measure time by the death and life of this person. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The world that celebrates his birth every single December at Christmas and they celebrate his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven every single April at Easter. See, more songs are written for him, more paintings are painted of him, more books are written about him, and more lives are devoted to him than any other person in human history. Why? And the answer is because his resurrection proved the, 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 the validity of the gospel that he came to share. And that is that he and he alone can save, and that God has expressed a desire to save you through Jesus. Follow with me in verse 6 and 7 as we kind of continue. Let's start in verse 5, though, so we get a head start. Whom, uh, yeah, whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called. I wish we had more time to talk about this. we got a movie to get to. So the word called is so fascinating here. If your story is anything like mine, there was a moment in your life where for some reason, God was like grabbing a hold of your heart. Now, it, there, there, you may have walked away when you got into college or whatever it was, but you remember a moment maybe where you felt like God was seeking after you. For me, I was throwing up in a bush because I drank an entire bottle of Grey Goose, and I'm throwing up in this bush thinking, this, this life's got to be better. And for some reason, I felt like God was just tugging on my heart, like saying, are you done? Do you want more? I have more for you. Right? And if your story is anything like my story, there was a moment in your life where you felt, for those of us that are followers of Christ, that God was seeking after you. Who are we that a great God would do something like that, that he would seek? That's what the word called means. Continue to follow me. It says this, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God are called to be saints, members of his family. Grace to you and peace, which by the way, are promises of God. Grace is unmerited favor because you have God's unmerited favor and anchoring the byproduct that is that you'll experience peace from our God, our Father, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. There's so many ways to kind of talk about this. And like I said, the first seven verses 
are a quick summary of what the next 423 are. And so I'm just going to end tonight maybe a little different with a question. And the question is this, do you really know the essence of the gospel? Do you understand the message of Jesus Christ? The essence of the Christian message is news. It is good and joyful news. This is the central difference between the gospel and every other religion. This is the central difference between every, um, uh, for Christianity and every philosophy or every other worldview. See, the gospel is not good advice about what you must do, right? It's primary good news about what's already been done for you. What do other religions say? Other religions say things like, if you want to be made right with God, do this, that, and the other thing. Adopt these things, uh, you know, do yoga or get in some weird pose and hum for three days. What, you know, live in a monk and be, be off in a, wherever it is. Isolate yourself from the rest of the world. Do X, Y, or Z. It is good advice, maybe. Christianity is not good advice, but primarily good news about something that's already been done for you on behalf of you. If you were to take your average American, maybe you're maybe at a college, or maybe you're walking around on Cerritos or Catella over here, you grab someone that's walking their dog or whatever, and you said, hey, I want a quick question for you. Could you, maybe for, for a second, explain to me what Christianity like is, what it's all about, what the essence of it is? This is a test that I often ask people to determine if they really know the gospel or not. Two things are most likely going to happen. Number one, if they start the answer to either what is the essence of, uh, of the Christian message or why do you follow Jesus Christ or how are you saved, and they start with I, they don't know the gospel because it's not I, it's he. He did it. The second is most people are going to give you an answer like this. What is the essence of the Christian message? The essence of the Christian message is that we would live like Jesus. We live a good life, whatever that means. Like, I don't know, help grandmas across the street, and whatever. And that we would follow the golden rule. You know the golden rule, right? Remember that? That you would treat people the way that you want to be treated. Let me ask you, is that news? Does that sound like news to you? Remember the word euangelion? The gospel is good news, not good advice. Let me tell you what good news sounds like. That the good news in Scripture is that we, because of our sin, we will find that in Romans 3, we are deserving of hell, but because of Jesus, we can get heaven. Good news sounds like that Jesus has done something so that God the Father, when he regards us, he looks upon you and I with favor, that he looks upon us with love, that in some sense of the way, there's a relationship change because of what Jesus has done, and now he delights in us, and now he accepts us. And so next week, in the weeks to come, as we continue to kind of go through the book of Romans, we're going to kind of discover and kind of understand this truth and why the gospel is so much better than good advice that it is good news of what God has done on behalf of you to reconcile you back to himself. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for you guys. And then uh, let's get to our movie. Father, so thankful about the good news that we find in Scripture. Um, Lord God, that you are a God that is merciful. God, that you are one that is sought after us. And I'm so thankful, God, that you interrupted my story like you interrupted Paul's. Um, in such a moment of depravity in my life, God, you showed up and you showed me that you're good, that you had something more for me. And so, Father, I'm thankful for that. I pray, Lord, as we continue throughout the next really 20 or 30 weeks or so, studying the book of Romans, God, would you teach us the heart and soul of what the gospel is? Father, we love you, we thank you in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.